everyone. This is Sam. And this is Kareen, and we are two Octocs. And I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan from the Fellow on Call. The goal for each of the episodes in this collaborative series is to provide an overview of the management of a specific disease and a breakdown of an abstract from ASCO 2023 in that same disease topic. We'll provide a few key points in critical appraisal at an understandable level for our listeners. Great. Thanks, Dan. So this week's episode, we're going to be focusing on a few details of the current treatment for locally advanced rectal cancer. If you're a regular listener, you know we just posted an episode on this last week, and we'll be covering the ASCO 2023 plenary session abstract of the prospect trial. Yes, this is very exciting. So briefly, Sam, how is rectal cancer different from colon cancer? Well, first and foremost, it's technically a different organ. And so the rectum doesn't have the same serosa as the colon. So it is much easier for tumor cells to break through and spread locally. Given this, rectal cancer has about a 20% risk of local recurrence as opposed to the low 2% risk of local recurrence with colon cancer. Local recurrences of rectal cancer have a poor prognosis. So we really focus on getting the best upfront treatment to prevent that local recurrence in this disease. So for these patients, what are the current treatment guidelines for locally advanced proficient MMR non-MSI high rectal cancer? Because last year we had the whole buzz about dostarlamab, but what about for those patients, which is the majority of our patients, who wouldn't be eligible? Absolutely. So excluding that small population that are mismatch repair deficient or MSI high, majority of our patients, we start talking about total neoadjuvant therapy followed by surgery for locally advanced rectal cancer. And this was based on two seminal trials. And so it was the Rapido trial, which looked at short course radiation followed by chemotherapy before surgery. And the Prodige 23 trial, which looked at chemotherapy and chemoradiation prior to surgery. So this is what you'll, if you open up the NCCN guidelines, this is how we treat stage two and three locally advanced rectal cancers. So with total neoadjuvant therapy, again, the review is chemo plus radiation, and the chemotherapy is 5-FU or capecitabine. You can also do short-course radiation over five days. They are equivalent to each other but have different toxicity profiles. Then after that or before that, you do KPOX or Fulfox or Fulfirinox based on the Prodige trial. Then you let the patients recover and you go move forward with transabdominal resection or possibly observation if they do have a complete response. Of note, with total neoadjuvant therapy, it is not established whether it is better to start with the chemotherapy component with Fulfox or KPOX, or to start with the chemoradiation component, 5-FU plus radiation for five and a half weeks, or short-course radiation. So really, it's a little bit of dealer's choice in the conversation on tumor boards on what to start with and how we're going to sequence total neoadjuvant therapy before surgery. That was a great review. So now let's dive right into this prospect trial. It was a randomized phase three trial of neoadjuvant chemoradiation versus neoadjuvant full Fox chemotherapy with selective use of chemoradiation, followed by total mesorectal excision or TME for treatment of locally advanced rectal cancer. So this abstract was presented by Dr. Shirag from Memorial Sloan Kettering at ASCO's plenary session this past Sunday. The key eligibility criteria for this trial to be enrolled were patients with locally advanced rectal cancer, including clinical stage T2 with node positivity, clinical stage T3 with node negativity, and clinical stage T3 with node positivity rectal cancers. 
All of these patients had to be eligible for sphincter sparing surgery. So these are the up high rectal cancers. The exclusion criteria included those who are higher risk. So the distal colorectal cancers, T4 tumors, those threatened by radial margins or greater than four enlarged lymph nodes. So the higher risk patients were excluded from this trial. Patients were randomized one-to-one without blinding because you truly can't blind patients getting radiation or not. And the control group received 5-FU chemo radiation, long course, so the full five and a half weeks with either capsidamine, the pill, or pump 5-FU. The intervention arm had six cycles of modified Fulfox, so again, that's 5-FU, leucovorin, and oxaliplatin, followed by staging. If at the time of staging, after the six cycles of chemo, there was tumor regression greater than 20%, then surgery was performed. If the tumor shrinkage was less than 20%, the patients moved on to long-course chemo radiation with 5-FU-based chemotherapy for the five and a half weeks, followed by surgery then. So truly, total neoadjuvant therapy in that control arm. Primary outcomes was disease-free survival, and that was defined as time from randomization to any recurrence or death. And secondary endpoints that everyone looked at was overall survival, local recurrence-free survival, R0 resection, pathologic complete response, as well as toxicities. Sam, that was a great summary of the trial. And I think one of the most important things you talked about there was that this is selective chemoradiation, meaning that we can have some patients who will move on to this TNT-based therapy. The trial did recruit 1,194 patients between June 2012 to December 2018, so a long time period for enrollment, and 1,128 were randomized. What was the standard of care during this time? Because this is a lot of years. I think that it's extremely important to note the dates of the recruitment. And so this is a decade ago, 2012 to 2018. And the standard treatment of a locally advanced rectal cancer at that time was long-course chemoradiation for five and a half weeks. The chemotherapy was the capecitabine or 5-a-few, followed by surgery. After people healed from surgery is when we talked about adjuvant chemo with KPOX or Fulfox. So this is pre the era of total neoadjuvant therapy is when this trial was designed and when patients were getting recruited to it. The regimen has increased toxicity associated with chemo radiation, and the goal of this trial was to try to reduce the toxicity from the radiation component. So thus, this technically was a de-escalating treatment, thinking, could we avoid chemo radiation and instead use chemotherapy before surgery in locally advanced rectal cancers? Right. And this is really important. So Sam, can you tell us about the results of this trial? Absolutely. So first, our patient demographics. So the median age was 57. So that's right in, you know, the colorectal age group that we're shooting for, even though we know now it can happen much younger. And that's why our colonoscopy age has dropped from 50 down to 45. Majority of patients were men with 30% being female and 70% being male. And that, again, fits the demographics for colorectal cancer. And 62% had clinically positive nodes. So I think that's important to note that node positivity was included as long as they were a T3, not a T4. This was a non-inferiority trial, and the non-inferiority for disease-free survival was met at five years, with 80.8% having disease-free survival with the chemotherapy arm or the experimental arm, and 78.6% of patients having disease-free survival in the chemoradiation arm, that standard arm. 
The hazard ratio was 0.92 favoring chemotherapy with selective chemoradiation only if they didn't meet that endpoint of having greater than or equal to 20% tumor regression. The freedom from local recurrence was similar in both groups, and the overall survival at five years was also nearly identical at 89% for the chemo arm and 90% for the chemo radiation arm. Surgical and pathologic endpoints were also very similar. And so I know we want to talk a little bit about non-inferiority trials. So Vivek, tell, tell me what we need to know. Yeah, Sam. So that was an amazing trial. I thought that we really had a decision here where we ran an appropriate non-inferiority trial. So in my mind, there are three important criteria for running a non-inferiority trial. Criteria number one, when you're comparing these treatments, the treatment that you're trying to see as non-inferior has to be more convenient. Number two, if it's not more convenient, it has to be cheaper, right? We, we want to ultimately save money. And number three, it has to be less toxic. If you have all three of those, convenient, cheaper, and less toxic, that is 100% ideal. And in this case, we are omitting therapy. We're giving much less toxicity for patients. So it was such an appropriate design to do a non-inferiority trial. You may be wondering, especially for those who don't have a big background statistics, how do we choose how many patients we need for non-inferiority trials? And how does this differ from our standard superiority trials? And the thing I really loved about this trial, and I don't see this very often, is they justified where they put their margins. And what I mean by that is when we're looking at non-inferiority, we're saying that because it's more convenient, it's cheaper, and it's less toxic, we're okay with sacrificing a few percentage points in something like disease-free survival. And what they did here was they outlined that they were saying that the five-year DFS difference had to be less than 5%. They said, that is our margin. If it's 3% more, we're willing to take that. But if it's more than 5%, meaning we're losing 6% benefit, 7% benefit, then this isn't worth it, even though it's less toxic. And they very much justified it. Highly recommend looking at the New England Journal paper where they talk about this. And the important thing that I also want to mention is that if you have a very wide margin, which meaning that uh, let's go for an 8% benefit or a 9% benefit, then that's very easy to hit. And you might actually be harming patients, even though you are giving a less toxic therapy. So I thought the justification was great. And that's a little bit of spiel on non-inferiority trial design. So I know that some patients ended up getting chemoradiation after all, for a variety of reasons. How many patients in this trial did end up going for chemoradiation as opposed to just chemo? And this is, sorry, within the chemo arm. Yeah. So this was within the experimental arm. So we tried, or it was designed for chemotherapy first, and then they restaged. If the tumor had greater than 20% regression, again, you move right forward to surgery and you hop over that chemoradiation toxicity and need to do total neoadjuvant therapy. If at that restaging scan, there was not a 20% regression in the tumor, the patients did need chemoradiation. So I think this is an important question. How many patients didn't get to skip over the radiation and did actually end up getting it. And the answer is 9%. So 53 of the 585 patients who were randomized to the chemotherapy arm required the addition of chemoradiation. And this was due to either, again, not having that 20% reduction of their tumor and then also not being able to tolerate full FOX. So chemotherapy is not completely toxic-free. And so there was, again, a small subsect of those patients who did still require chemoradiation after chemo and got, in our sense now, total neoadjuvant treatment before surgery. 
And so speaking of toxicity and quality of life, what were the patient reported outcome results of this trial? So I think this was another important topic and something that I'm very glad that, you know, even back in 2012, we were thinking of and we were measuring, and that is patient reported outcomes. So again, the science is great, the biology is great, but also how does this affect individuals? And so the patient reported outcomes of this trial were measured by the PRO CTCAE surveys, and the results show that there were significantly higher rates of toxicity, interestingly, reported in the full FOX or the chemo group compared to the chemo radiation group. This included appetite loss, which we know happens with chemo, constipation, which can happen with chemo and, and the antiemetics that we give with it, fatigue, nausea, and neuropathy from the oxaloplatin. But the chemo radiation group had, of course, more diarrhea noted because you're radiating that end of the rectum. I think it's interesting or important to note that while there was higher rates of toxicity reported, there also was double the time to be able to report these toxicities in the chemo arm because the chemotherapy group did have a longer neoadjuvant treatment than the five and a half weeks of the chemo radiation arm. So take that with a grain of salt. At the 12-month mark, interestingly, again, the toxicity most noted was neuropathy, and that was in the chemoradiation arm. And that's because those patients who had upfront chemoradiation followed by surgery got more oxaloplatin in the adjuvant setting, and so they had more neuropathy on the back end. And so that was an important thing to note. There was also more long-term toxicities from the radiation itself. So again, take it all with a grain of salt, but up up front, the chemo arm looked like it had more toxicity, but again, they had longer time to report the patient-reported toxicities. At the one-year mark, the chemo radiation arm had more neuropathy and then more long-term toxicities from the radiation. Quality of life evaluations seemed to favor the full FOX, the chemotherapy group, but it wasn't statistically significant. Bowel function and sexual function also favored the chemo arm because these patients avoided the radiation toxicities. Wow, you know this. This sounds like a really incredible trial. I'm, I'm glad we talked about it. Uh, the idea that a trial that was designed over 10 years ago can still have, you know, an impact and really important findings today. Just as a practicing oncologist, can you give us an overview of how this trial might change the landscape of treating rectal cancers going forward? Absolutely. So the study, again, it enrolled favorable locally advanced rectal cancer patients. So not the T4s, not the large lymph nodes, not if they weren't eligible for sphincter sharing surgery. It did show that in that selective group, selective omission of chemoradiation, those who responded to neoadjuvant full FOX, they do well. So this did not compromise local control. The disease-free survival and overall survival were almost similar. So it was non-inferiority. And so this is a safe and effective option for this population of rectal cancer patients. So I think the bottom line is the results of this trial does give more options for physicians and patients to talk about treating the early intermediate risk rectal cancers. The trial shows that the population can receive curative intent therapy with chemotherapy before surgery, selectively utilizing that chemo radiation, which does have more toxicity short-term and long-term associated with it. And so again, I think maybe we question, we don't need to do total neoadjuvant therapy in all rectal cancers that are stage two and three, but rather we need to be risk-associating them. 
They did a great review of this abstract during the plenary session, and they did actually make mention that the Europeans' ESMO guidelines actually does already emit the chemoradiation portion in these early intermediate risk locally advanced rectal cancers. So we just now have the data in the U.S. to back this up. We've also been talking a little bit at ASCO about the Prodige trial, and they said so they've also done updates. I think an important thing to note is a comparison of who was enrolled in the Prodige trial, and they did include higher risk, more advanced tumors. Those tumors that were T4, that were N2, that were you know large and at risk. So those patients still do need total neoadjuvant therapy, but maybe the lower risk ones, we can avoid some toxicity and some radiation and just do some chemo before surgery. One other critical takeaway that I want to discuss from a critical appraisal side of things is that we really need to be evaluating non-inferiority trials with what their margin is. A justification of the margin, surprisingly to me, when I started looking for it, doesn't happen very often. And this was an amazing trial at showing that. In fact, last year, when we looked at the use of CTDNA for adjuvant chemotherapy in colon cancer patients... They use a non-inferiority margin, allowing for over 8% difference in DFS. And that didn't make sense based on what we know about giving things like Folfox. We would have things like a 6% improvement in high-risk patients. This was a great justification. And always look for that. And then always ask yourself three questions. Is this more convenient? Is it cheaper? And is it less toxic? If you don't answer yes to any of those, you should not do a non-inferiority trial. Absolutely. That was such a great overview. And we're so excited about this special collaborative series. So thank you for listening and tuning in. We will release the next episode on Wednesday. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, corrections on our Twitter, Instagram, our websites to Onkdocs, as well as the fellow on call. Thanks.